Please rise for the gospel. The gospel comes to us this morning from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And every year we have, just before the Epiphany season, a text about the baptism of Jesus. And this is how Jesus prepares to begin his ministry. So he presents himself to John to be baptized, and this is Matthew's account of that event. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper in us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of the Holy Gospel. You may be seated. Let us pray. Loving and most merciful God, thank you for already bringing us into one week into the new year and that you continue to inform our thoughts. And we greet this text this morning as we fast forward from the Christmas season when Jesus is still just but a child and now he's at the cusp of beginning his, his public ministry. So let us take to heart that baptism is usually the means by which many of us begin our faith journey. So let us learn from the baptism of Jesus and in order that it might continue to inform our own spiritual walk with you. May the words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. Bless, keep, and guide us now and always. Amen. So as I said earlier that Jesus' baptism is something that is sort of baked into the lectionary cake. And his reasons for being baptized were not the same reasons that we present children or even adults to the font. Uh, Jesus had no reason to be baptized for, shall we say, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But in order for him to establish the right framework with the people of God and to observe the righteousness and the fulfillment of the prophecy, he presented himself before John the Baptist in order that he might be baptized so as to set a marker on himself that, that there's no distance between his call to ministry and the other people's call to ministry. If he was going to be leading these individuals as their, as their messianic leader, it would be fitting for him to observe the same rites and rituals that they would be observing, thus establishing some familiarity between his ritual cleansing and their ritual cleansing. But John understands this. John understands that Jesus actually is superior to the ministry that John is doing. So that's why Matthew and the other Gospels, but we're dealing with Matthew today, shows John hesitating. John's like, if you are who I believe you were to be, you should be baptizing me. Because, And the reason why John says this is because it's important for John to note that the ministry that he is calling people to is come Repent of your sins, receive this baptism, and get yourself ready for the one who will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire, which obviously is a much more intensive interaction between the people and God's servant than what John is doing. John is trying to prepare the way of the Messiah. So if the Messiah is already at hand, then John's like, 
you need to be baptizing me because then your ministry will begin. Jesus pauses and tells John it's okay to consent to this because we must do this in order to fulfill righteousness. We need to order, do the right order of things. But there's, there's more to it. There's more to it than just, than just uh, Jesus saying, let's fulfill the prophecy, so therefore you baptize me. I also think that what we see in the baptism, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit, the way that Jesus undergoes this baptism demonstrates how he is going to carry his ministry. It demonstrates the way that he's going to interact with individuals and the way that he's going to make God known. And the first thing that we see here with his exchange between John is that, first of all, people are important to the ministry of Jesus. And John is no exception. And even though John has a specific call to get people ready for the Messiah, Jesus doesn't just show up and usurp him, show up and make him redundant, move him to the side and say, all right, John, off with you. Jesus demonstrates by telling John, let this be done, that he respects the ministry that John is doing. The ministry that John has and the role that John has to play to proclaim the way of the Messiah is very important and it's valid until Jesus finally comes into his own, which he exits from the desert and begins calling disciples. So John demonstrates or Matthew demonstrates that John still has validity even though Jesus is on the scene, even though Jesus is there. Jesus doesn't wrestle the ministry away from John. He allows and partakes in the role and the respect of what John is called to do, and he allows him to participate and to contribute that call even in Jesus' life. Now, we who attach ourselves to the personage of Jesus are also going to be called to serve one another in a variety of ways. And I think that one thing that augments the nature of church and of Christendom is being able to value the unique calls of everybody else who is also called into this one body. And so often there has been problems in, in churches where one individual or a set of individuals do not feel that they need to affirm nor even acknowledge the roles that every other individual is called to play. This is, this is commonplace in just about any church that, that you, that's still open in an operation, is that there's a sense in which there is a disagreement at times in terms of the validity of the ministry of person A over person B. And it comes because of these little sacred cows that we develop, who's been here longest, who's older, who has the most information, who's in the inner circle. I mean, Jesus had this amongst his disciples as well. But what we see from the get-go, even before Jesus starts calling disciples, is the importance that he places on the unique roles and positions that God gives people to do. Everyone has a task or a set of tasks and everyone has a unique worldview, and everyone has a desire to be able to serve God in the way that God has sort of arrayed them. So Jesus doesn't just come and say, all right, John, we have no need of you because I'm here. He's like, no, you, you let us do this to fulfill all righteousness so people can see you, John, baptizing me, the soon-to-be Messiah, and, and thus elevating not only the importance, but the validity of the ministry that John is called to do. So the gospel gives opportunity for each and every individual to find their home in it, 
and their place in it. Don't let anyone tell you that what you do and who you are and how you are arrayed is not important or sufficient for God. If they tell you these things, it's because they are trying to deceive you and to try to uh, make their role in the world a little bit more important than your own. So, you have a role to play. It is important. And we need the full force of the household of God in order to actually get the gospel out in the world. So Jesus respects people, and he respects the roles that they are called to do. And we see this. This is consistent throughout his ministry, whether they are members of the house of Israel or if they are Gentiles. We see that Jesus always meets individuals where they are at, ministers to them where they are at, and respects who they are. He doesn't dismiss them because they were born into a different household or they have come different generational or they're male or female or they're young or old or they were caught in sin or they had a demon. He meets them where they're at, respects who God has created them to be and unlocks their potential by removing whatever the impediment might be to keep them from maximizing their full potential in God's eyes. The other thing that we see in this baptism is that Jesus appreciates process. John has a ritual to perform. He has a, he has a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he has been duty-bound to make sure that as many ears who can hear this and get themselves ready for the Messiah will hear it. And we, we see in previous texts during the Advent season of the efficiency and the urgency at which John was calling people down to the Jordan and telling them, Repent, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not miss this opportunity because the Messiah will soon come on the heels and he will pick up and carry on where I've, you know, I'm only in the, like John gets us into the, uh, the antechamber, but Jesus will take us into the, into the sanctuary. So there's a process for these things. And Jesus has a process that he will unfold in his own ministry as well. And one is, that Jesus does open-air ministry, and he goes to where the people are at. And this drove his critics crazy because this, you know, he would go and he would consort with people that they considered were undesirable types, sinners and tax collectors. But Jesus, his process was to meet people where they were at. But he respects John's process that John has a baptism. So he doesn't usurp that, but he submits himself to that process. Now we too, who have been attached to the, the workings of the church, we have processes within our own structure and within our own lives that we use to deepen our understanding of our spirituality. One of them is worship. Probably one of the, the primary vehicles for us to deepen our understanding is, is through the act of corporate worship. But there's Bible study. There's conversations, there's reading uh, different literary books, hearing programs, being able to stay in the word in some way. These are all processes that are designed for us to deepen our understanding and our connection with God. But these processes, without a third principle, are no good. And what we find is that the way that we, that we strengthen our relations with God and God's people is through practice, which is why we call it a spiritual practice. And the spiritual practice is being able to repeat as often as necessary these things which attach us uh, closer to the reality of God, to the worship of God, and to the appreciation for this life that God has given us. 
This is where I think we fall short. Not we particularly here, gathered here today, but we collectively fall short because we understand, we understand that there is a call from us to stay connected to God. And usually that's the thing that often gets shelved more frequently than not. Um, worship attendance suffers. Bible reading suffers. Uh, conversations about God are lackluster, if we have them at all. And soon, these things that are designed to keep us in the, the know and in the flow of our religious practice become rusty. Uh, I once heard it said that of, of parishioners, and this was, this was by a pastor, not me, and not anyone in my household, in case you're thinking, because um, I, I would never set no, I set up Laura different ways, but not this way. Anyway, it was said to me by a clergy that most people are satisfied with their eighth grade confirmation instruction, and that's that. Like, everything I needed to learn, I learned in middle school confirmation, and there's nothing more that can be added to that. Now, and you should have looks of shock, which you do, because you realize that the spiritual life is not something that can be concluded uh, at about age 13. It is an ongoing process. And the way that God intersects with us through the seasons of our life is something that requires that we stay on top of our spiritual instruction, whether it's worship, whether it's uh, reading religious authors, having good conversations, listening to programs, whatever it is, you have to stay on top of this. And so Jesus, in his, in his ministry, what Jesus was trying to do was to unlock the potential and the reality of God in the lives of those who knew that God was, was out there and, and meant something for them, but they, but they never just really had the hands-on aspect of it. So when Jesus arrived and put the reality of God in sort of three dimensions for them, immediately people were like, how, how is it that I... How is it like that I can stay with this feeling? Which is one reason why I always feel like when, people, when Jesus healed someone and then he immediately told them, do not speak of these things, don't tell anyone. I mean, that was like some kind of reverse psychology because the first thing they did was they went and they told everyone about what God had done for them and you, and you couldn't shut them up about it. And their excitement and their enthusiasm for having been enveloped in the reality of God was so powerful that from that point on they could not live their lives the same way. We've lost a bit of that passion and that zeal. Uh, God is so accessible to us, and I really do believe that God is so accessible to us, at least through the resources that we have, that we have we've lost the the sort of catechism Clismic interaction when, that, when we have that first encounter with God, when God becomes very real to us, when we realize that there's something that's going on in these spiritual byways, we've lost the, the enthusiasm of what it means to be connected to God. It just becomes another thing that we have to deal with. So spiritual practice is designed to keep us in that enthusiasm, is to keep us in that excitement and to keep us uh, on fire so that way we can convey that to others. I think what we have is not a lack of, we don't have a lack of 
potential spiritual beings. We have a lack of enthusiasm. It's not that people have walked away from God. It's just that they've forgotten to feel passionate about God. And if there's a crisis in their life and God delivers them from that, then they're like, oh, good, that's good that God was still connected with me. But we have lost our connection and our hearts have become dim because we have not been reminded of the enthusiastic connection. Why is this important, though, from Jesus' baptism? Is because... We will see that as Jesus observes the process and then as he continues to sort of wash and rinse and repeat in his own ministry, that he brings that same enthusiasm that he felt from the very launch of his ministry into the lives of all of those that he will interact with. Read the Gospels for yourself. You will see that there was nobody who had an encounter with Jesus who wasn't markedly changed after encountering with him. Whether it was the fact that he had spared them from some infirmity or he had spared them from the criticisms of the crowd or he had just quite literally just brought them a teaching that reminded them of how important they were in the world. That these interactions and these exchanges left them feeling as if somehow that they had not been passed over, they had not been forgotten, that they were absolutely essential in their time and in their place to do the work of God. And when you have that amount of people who are feeling that level of enthusiasm, look at the work that gets done. Look at the work that gets done when people realize, God has given me something to do. God has given me a unique call. God has given me a blessing. God has not passed over me. And they take that understanding and they go into the world with it. Get out of their way. Get out of their way because those people are on fire and they are going to affect change. Now, what's really important that we note is that when Jesus rises up out of the water, and there's been some contesting as to who heard the voice or who saw the dove. Uh, We know that John was there. We know that John probably had other individuals who were coming down to be baptized. But we do know this. We do know that, that Jesus heard the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I was reading a commentary on this and says that this is not ecstasy. This is not, uh, not the drug, right? Of course, you good church people, you wouldn't even know that ecstasy is a drug, except now that I just mentioned it. But don't go looking for it, okay? Very, very bad for you. Ecstasy, the sense of praise, the sense of jubilation, the sense of sort of um, exultation. The, the commentator says that this is not God who's like blowing loud trumpets and doing fanfare and heavenly hosts. That's what happened to the shepherds. When the shepherds were in the field, the heavenly host, there was a chorus of angels singing Glory to God in the most highest. Go and see this thing that's been done. What we have here is a little bit more subdued. What we have here is God looking down upon Jesus who who has up to this point and will continue to do everything well and say, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with him. Right? When's the last time you were pleased with someone and you have that feeling where you you don't have to gush? You don't have to emote. You don't even have to raise your voice in, in enthusiasm. You just look and you go, child, well done. You know? It, it, yes. Now, why is this important for us? Because we are joint heirs, at least this is what our covenant tells us. We are joint heirs with Christ. So if Jesus, who has observed things, who has observed true worship, and has unlocked true worship for us, if he has observed these things as pleasing to God, then we who ride on his coattails shall also be pleasing, which means our own respective ministries, our own usage of our own gifts, our own capacity to make God known in our own time and in our own place to the people that we are called to serve, right, whose lives intersect with our own, that we too will share in that corporate pleasing 
that first began with Jesus even before he was driven into the wilderness to work on what that means to bring people into communion with God. Now, I want to leave you with a quote here from Thomas Merton from his 1956 book, Thoughts in Solitude. And now, that, now that's, that's a plug. If you haven't read it, it's a, it's, a, it's a quick read. It's a good read. You can probably find it in just about every form. It's called Thoughts in Solitude by Thomas Merton. And here is a quip here, a prayer that he wrote about being pleasing to God. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me in the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will always trust you always, though I may always seem lost, and out of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Thomas Merton, Thoughts in Solitude. Check it out. Amen.